Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son to die for us. And Father, I thank you that you have so much for us, that you've revealed yourself to us, and you have provided a means for us to be with you for all of eternity. I ask, Father God, that as we come into your word today, that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, you do the work in our hearts to transform us. And I thank you, Father God, that we're here gathered today as the body of Christ. And I ask that you'd help us as members of the body of Christ to encourage one another and build one another up and cause your church to be strong. I thank you, Father God, for the children that are here today. I ask that as they go downstairs that they would also hear the truth, that they would know that Jesus lives, that they would understand why he came, why he had to die. And I thank you, Father God, that the next generation will know the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the time we have today, and may these words be empowered by you. More of you and less of me. In Christ's name, amen. Children, you are excused. What fun they're going to have. Making coffee filters into flowers. This is a good time for us as the body of Christ. And this is the second in our series, The Acts of Peter. But I want to start a little bit with the church. The modern church, especially the church that we know in the United States, has emphasized various programs, Bible studies, small groups, culturally relative um, music and services. The church has also incorporated psychology, management, advertising techniques. A lot of things have become a part of what we call church. And, and none of those would necessarily be wrong. And they may be useful in the life of the church. But often what is most important has been diminished or even sacrificed. And, and a story that, that's a little bit personal for me about how that has diminished because we're going to talk about preaching, and we're going to talk about preaching the word today. There's a church that I know that when I was a young man had two services. Their sanctuary held about 600 people, something like that. And they were the same as full every Sunday, both services. Today, that church still is in existence, but it would be very rare if they ever had 80 people show up at all. And there's a reason why, and there, it's a major reason, and I'm not going to name that church, but the reason has to do with pro proclaiming God's word, has to do with preaching. The church began with an emphasis on preaching. Preaching is a foundational, godly concept. Now, please understand, I'm, I'm not here just to make... You know, I want you all to appreciate the fact that I do this every week. You know, it's not just, it's not about me. It's about the, the, the process. This is something that God has given to us, the church. I want you to see how preaching is a foundational godly concept. 
So we're going to start by looking at Luke 4.18 because in this passage, Jesus takes us back to a prophecy from Isaiah. So we're going to see that the idea of preaching even extended back into the Old Testament. This is from Luke 4.18. He's in a synagogue at Nazareth and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah and this is what occurs. 418. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is reading Isaiah. And Isaiah uses the word proclaim. Some translations will use the word preach, which is just fine. Proclaim or preach. And and that word is used three times. The the word there, proclaim or, or preach, and it means to announce glad tidings. Or it could be used to say preaching, to proclaim. The proclamation of God's truth has always been a priority in the gathered assemblies of God's people, Old Testament and New. This idea of proclaiming, preaching, is not just a New Testament idea. We also see that Jesus emphasized this in his ministry. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached. And the word that is used there for preaching, caruso, it means to proclaim, to announce publicly. In Luke 4, verse 43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And I I really, I almost fixate on that first phrase, I must preach. Because if you've ever been around somebody uh, like Zachariah, we must preach. It's not optional. What would you do? You know, maybe maybe it's time for Bill to retire. I got to preach. I, gotta, I, I have to. There's a, a passion and a drive to, to preach. And, and Jesus is saying the same thing. I must preach. I must proclaim the good news. This emphasizes why God has made this a, a foundational characteristic of the church. We also see this in the writings of, of Paul when he's, he's exhorting Timothy. 2 Timothy 4. Beginning verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word, he says. It's got to be a part of who we are. Strong churches. Proclaim the word of God. And that church that I mentioned earlier, the reason it's no longer a strong church is because they've removed the word of God from their proclamation. 
Strong churches preach with passion the word of God. And this is what we find in the second chapter of Acts. So now we're going to get into the, the, the second part of our series about the Acts of Peter because we're going to go to 50 days after the Passover and resurrection of Christ. The disciples have gathered together, most likely at the temple. And I think that that's where they're at because a variety of things. But, but one of them is because of what Luke 24, 53 tells us. It, it tells us that the disciples were staying continually at the temple praising God. It states they were at the temple. This is also the feast of the Pentecost. It's the beginning of that big feast. They're at the temple. There's also a huge gathering. This is not, don't think that this is the 12, the 11. You know, this isn't the small group of disciples. This isn't just the 120. I believe that there's more than that here because so many people had come to Jerusalem for this this Pentecost feast. They're there. And they've been attracted. And they've especially been attracted because of what's been happening. Flames of fire and wind and people talking in languages they don't know. And there's, there's this whole commotion. So there's a large crowd of people gathered together in one place. Jews, out in the open, public. And this is where we pick up Peter, because Peter stands up to speak. This, this is where the connection needs to be. Try to put some of this into the context of where we've seen Peter, like last week, timid and full of denial. Verse 14, chapter 2 of Acts. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I shall show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness And the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. That God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his death nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of all that we excuse me this Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Peter's sermon. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's preaching. That's proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. So here we see Peter and he's speaking before a large group of people. He's in public. He's surrounded by Jews. This is a large gathering of people and he's no longer afraid. He's no longer running from what God has called him to do. And, and, and the reality is Peter is doing exactly what Jesus told him to do after that breakfast beside the Sea of Galilee. Peter's tending, shepherding, and feeding God's sheep. He's doing it. In this, this sermon... Verse 17 through 21. So so in verse 17, Peter explains this this thing that has happened. The astonishing display of, of fire and wind and the miraculous languages. And he does that by going to the prophet Joel. Joel was well known, well known to the Jews. Jewish people would have known this. This was part of their upbringing. And Joel's prophecy speaks of the last days. The last days was a common Jewish expression signifying the time when Messiah would come. The last days began with the first coming of Jesus. The Messiah came. 
Are we living in the last days? We're, we're, we're still in the last days. But they began when Jesus, when Jesus came, the Messiah came. The Jews would know that. Here we, here we see this, this boldness of Peter. He's proclaiming Messiah. He's, the Messiah has come. He's not guessing at it. He's not wimping out on it. He's boldly, publicly proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah and he has come. Look at this confidence in verse 29. I may say to you with confidence. He has confidence because Christ had risen. Christ has ascended to heaven. And the spirit now resided within Peter. Peter's been transformed. In verse 25, Peter also uses the Psalms, familiar Psalms, Psalms of David. David was the hero of the Jews. I mean, you just can't get any better than King David. And so Peter reminds them that David was buried not far from where they were gathered. And Peter reminds the Jews that, that God had sworn that a descendant of David would be upon the throne. And that Messiah would die and be resurrected. So he's, he's reminding them of the truth of what the Messiah had to do. This would have been incredibly difficult for the Jews. Notice in verse 36, Peter says, Therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Peter again has this incredible confidence to declare the truth about Jesus. He's Lord. He's Messiah. That's Christ. Messiah. He's proclaiming this with confidence, passion, and absolute certainty. Now, compare that. Lay that alongside of what we looked at last week. That last night of Jesus' life, Peter follows him. And he's accused of being one of the followers of Jesus. And Peter's response is to deny him vehemently. He's, he's almost passionate about how he doesn't know Jesus. And he denies Christ three times. Adamantly opposed to calling Jesus Messiah on that night. But here, in public... Before a large group of people, he boldly preaches Jesus as Messiah. What changed? There's a transformation. What, what, what is it? And the big change, Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. That's the change. Jesus ascends into heaven. And arriving there, Jesus and the Father send the Spirit. John puts it this way for us. John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You know this is true because the Spirit of God resides in you. That's the transformation. 
Peter didn't have to do it on his own strength as a Galilean fisherman. He was able to do it because the Spirit of God resides in him now. That's the transformation. That's the transformation by the power of God. In verse 37, we're told that Peter gives this sermon and the people who were listening were pierced to the heart. What Peter has preached with great confidence and power was devastating to Jewish listeners. They, they understood. The people that were there, they, they understood Jesus to a certain extent. They understood Jesus had been rejected. They understood that he had been executed. And now they're confronted with this, this, this truth. And they recognize because of the power of Peter's preaching that Jesus was Messiah. That's what pierced them to the heart. They're stunned. They had, as Jews, they had expected the Messiah for generation after generation. Messiah had come. And the Jews, they, the group of people there, they would identify as the Jews, put him to death. This would have caused those Jews that were gathered and heard this message and got it. They understood what was going on. They would have felt desperate because they feared God's wrath. They understood as God's people what that meant, God's wrath. Peter clearly proclaimed Jesus to be alive. He's alive. So this intensifies the fear. This, this increases their, their angst. They're, they're scared even more because they also knew from their teaching as Jews that the Messiah would vanquish all of his enemies. They're now gaining this, this idea and they see because of the power of the Spirit of God in this preaching that they killed the Messiah. And this, in their understanding, meant they were enemies of God. What a scary place that is. If you understand the wrath of God, you certainly don't want to be his enemy. They also understood that the crucifixion, the burial, that, that can't be changed. Now they're hearing about the, the resurrection and the ascension. They're, they're hearing about this truth. They can't change that either. They're in a bad place. And this leads them as a group to the most important question any human can ask. What shall we do? Someone is confronted with the truth about Jesus Christ and they don't know him. Their response needs to be, what do I do? And I think some of the meaning behind that short phrase, what shall we do? Is they're saying, what must we do to be saved from God's wrath? Same thing today. What must we do? Peter answers. Acts 2.38. Peter says to them, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's, let's think about that. He says, repent, metanoia. In the context of the gospel, repent. It means to change your mind, literally, change your mind. You could also say it means to change direction. I'm going to repent. Literally, that's what's behind the word. So in the context of the gospel, it means that you change your mind. You agree with God about the wickedness of your heart. You agree with God that you are a sinner, that you deserve to be put to death. Repent does not mean regret. I hear this a lot. I'm so sorry about my sin. Father, I'm sorry. And we, we have this... I'm sorry for my sinful behavior, regret kind of thing that's going on, but that's not repentance. You can regret it, that's fine, but that's not the point. Repentance is to agree with God about our sin and to agree that we should rightfully be destroyed because of our sin. What it is is that we understand our sinfulness, our sin nature from the perspective of God's perfect holiness. The sinner who repents agrees with God and allows the Spirit of God to transform them into a new creature. This is one of the things we see as we examine Peter. He's been transformed. He is not the same kind of man that he was before. The Spirit of God has transformed him. As Peter continues to speak, he, he, he speaks, it says, with clarity and boldness. And there's a massive response. A massive response. Peter's sermon really is actually very amazing. Those who received the word were baptized and added that day about 3,000 souls. So, so I'm not saying, you know... One of us is up here preaching and God does something and 3,000 come to... What would we do with an increase of 3,000? You know, that's, that's like half of this town. That's crazy. Only God can do those kinds of things. This, this sermon of Peter is really very amazing. And, and there's so much that we could do here. What I want to do and what I believe God wants us to see is that this, this amazing sermon also illustrates two components, two very important components of biblical preaching. And I believe God wants us to go here because you all have access to a whole bunch of preaching if you want. Christian radio, Christian TV, podcasts. It's all over. You can find all kinds of preaching How do you know whether it's good preaching or bad preaching? How do you discern that? What do you know about biblical preaching? Well, here's two things to help you with that. The two components are defined by the Greek words kerugma and didache. I want you all to memorize that. You got it memorized? Okay. Kerugma and didache. The noun kerugma comes from the verb caruso. And caruso means to proclaim. That's that's the doing. Proclaiming. Preaching. 
Kerugma refers to the content of the proclamation. What is somebody proclaiming? In good biblical preaching, the kerugma, the content, is made up of five elements. Now, in some preaching, you may not hear specifically all five of these in one sermon. Sometimes you will. But one of the ways you can analyze or you can discern whether a a man of God is preaching godly sermons is whether or not their overall approach to preaching includes these five elements. One, Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's the real deal. He's the Messiah. He's connected to the Old Testament because he's fulfilled prophecy after prophecy. That's the first part. Second one, Karugma describes Jesus as God in human flesh. So we get that, that dual nature of Jesus that had to be there for, our, for his sacrifice to pay for our sins. It focuses, the third one, it focuses on Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It also speaks of his early life and work, his earthly life and his, his work. If you listen to somebody preaching and, you, and, and you're on whatever, radio or wherever, and you're listening to somebody preach and they do not mention the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ or they don't allude to it or they don't take you to a place where you've got to look at the death, burial, and resurrection, shut it off. Biblical preaching is all about Jesus. Fourth, the Kerugma proclaims Jesus will come again. He's coming again. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. I don't know, but he's coming again. And I put my trust in him. The Kerugma also declares that salvation is only through Jesus. Only through faith in Jesus. And along with that, those who reject Jesus as Savior are eternally damned. Those are the five concepts that have to be in place. When you listen to a preacher, those principles need to be the foundation of where whoever it is goes to preach. That's their motivation. Sometimes that's their content. You'll find all five of them. The other component of biblical preaching is didache. Didache, the word means that which is taught, and it can also be translated as doctrine. Biblical preaching contains teaching. You don't have a sermon that's just preaching, and you don't have a sermon that's just teaching. They go together in biblical preaching. When someone stands to preach in the, in the church, their message should contain both karugma and didache. Great preachers passionately proclaim proclaim Christ as well as teach the amazing, rich, supernatural, profound truths that God has revealed in Scripture. They have to be there. Biblical preaching then has both proclamation of Christ and his glorious gospel as well as teaching of biblical truth. The reason that this is important is both come together in that transformation process. This is how we are matured by God through preaching and teaching and being a part of the body of Christ. 
The two come together. Quite frankly, I think that we need to also look at that maturing thing. Is that really what we want? Do you want to be a more mature believer or not? If you do, then get around some people who are going to proclaim Jesus Christ. Be around people who are going to teach the word. Preaching. So so I, I come into the pulpit and I stand here. And at least this one's low enough. I don't have to have a box to stand on. I'm not here to entertain. I'm not here to impress you with fancy words. That's not why I struggle with Greek words. I'm here to present the kerygma and the didache. That's what it's all about. That's my passion, is that you get those two things inside of you. My desire when I preach is to see people respond as well. I want to see people respond with the same kind of words and the same kind of attitude that those responded to Peter. What shall we do? I want to see people go, I've got to do something different with my life. I believe because biblical preaching is so much about what God has done in the church that we are continually being challenged and pierced in our hearts by the kerygma and the didache. Do we yield to the teaching of the Holy Spirit? Do we yield to the proclamation that the Messiah has come? Do we yield because our heart's desire is to mature as we hear the kerygma and the didache? This morning, the kerygma and the didache are calling. That's, that's the proclamation. The kerygma and the didache are calling you and I. For some, here and maybe watching That call is repent. Agree with God. Agree with God about your sin. Agree with God about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Put your faith in Jesus. Be saved from this wicked generation. That's a call from God. Be saved. There's a way. Respond. For some... The repentance is to fully accept God's word as absolute truth. And I go there because we are bombarded by lies every day, continuously. And people lie about the scriptures and and they tell us this isn't all truth. There isn't an absolute truth. Baloney, you need to repent from that kind of thinking and fully accept that God's word is absolute truth and then live like that's really what you believe. I think for most of us, the kerygma and the dache are challenging us to fill our minds with his truth. That's that's a huge challenge. That's a challenge for every single believer. And here's how I practically want to challenge you today. Here's the challenge. Can you... Can you spend more time every day with the word of God than you spend with your favorite news source? 
We have so much going on. The world is falling apart around us, and so we spend a lot of time with whatever our news source is. You spend 20 minutes with your news, can you spend 40 in God's word? That's the challenge. That's the challenge. That's what will really help you. That's what will help you get through the 20 minutes of crud that you just watched or listened to in the news. If you fill your mind with God's word, you'll find answers to the pain and the suffering and the confusion and the worry and anger and struggles and trials. And by answers, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's all going to go away and everything, you know, oh, warm fuzzies. What it means is that God will give you the source of being able to live through it. The only way we live through the pain and the suffering that we all go through is if we're filled with the word of God. That's the only thing we have. That's truth. That's where the power of God is at. That's why the Kurugama is saying, spend time in the word. The Kurugama and the Dodache calling you to a better life in Christ. A better life in Christ. Go there. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are so full of power. Spirit of God, transform us that we would mature as believers. That we would seek you and live by your word. And that as we are transformed, we would also proclaim. We must proclaim Jesus. Help us, Spirit of God, to proclaim the truth. Father, forgive us for not filling ourselves with truth. Thank you for the work of your Son. Thank you for the charisma and the dache. In Christ's name, amen.